In this episode of Flying Smarter, I'm answering questions about why there are restrictions on liquids at airport security and why airlines fly empty planes around. Afterwards, I'm taking a look at what you need to know about shopping during your flying experience. Welcome to episode 5 of Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel. This is the first episode after our initial launch, and I want to take a quick moment to thank you all for your support and for listening. And I also want to say a special thanks to those of you who actually reached out to me. Um, I really appreciate your kind words. And uh, on that note, I want to invite all of you to get in touch with me as well if you have questions, comments, feedback, or just want to say hi. And my final shout out is to all those people who helped with the launch of the podcast. I haven't gotten everyone's permission, so I'm not going to go around calling people out by name, but you know who you are, and I really want to say thank you. And if this is your first time listening to Flying Smarter, welcome, and let's get right into it. As usual, I'm going to start off by answering some questions about air travel. The first question today comes from Gabrielle from Niagara, Canada. Why are there restrictions on bringing liquids through airport security? Well, you know, Gabrielle, that's a really great question. And these days, the restrictions on liquids at airport security are just a regular part of flying. We don't really think twice of it when we go around emptying our water bottles and packing our small containers of toothpaste or face cream or whatever it may be into those clear Ziploc bags. And those who fly often are more than familiar with the rules, so each passenger can only bring a single 1 liter clear plastic bag of liquids, and each container containing liquids can be no more than 100 milliliters. And although I should point out at this point that the exact restrictions vary from country to country, for example, some countries limit the size of the clear bag based on its dimensions rather than the volume, but it's all roughly the same around the world. You might remember the good old days when such restrictions didn't exist and you could bring your filled water bottles and shampoo bottles or whatever it may be uh, through airport security in your carry-on. All that changed in 2006 though, when British police discovered a terrorist plot to detonate liquid explosives on planes traveling from the United Kingdom to North America. The plot basically involved disguising liquid explosives as soft drinks, and a number of people ended up being arrested, charged, and convicted. Governments around the world reacted really quickly when they found out about the plot. In the United Kingdom, the government basically banned all carry-on luggage except for a purse or a wallet, and the measures actually got so strict at first that you couldn't bring a pen because the ink they contained was a liquid, and uh, you know there was an exception if you wanted to bring baby food on board for your baby, but you actually had to taste it in front of airport security to prove that it was real. In the United States, all liquids and gels except for baby formula and prescription medication was banned, and other countries around the world enacted similar measures. These changes created a whole host of additional problems. Baggage systems couldn't cope with the massive increase in checked luggage, and tons and tons of flights were cancelled. In the following weeks and months though, the rules were relaxed, but there were still restrictions on liquids in carry-on luggage. And over a decade later, these restrictions are still in place today. Thank you so much, Gabrielle, for the question. If you have a question that you want to be answered on the podcast, get in touch with us on social media or at flyingsmarter.com forward slash contact. 
There, you can send us a message or even record your question. Why do airlines sometimes fly empty planes around? I'm going to segment the answer to this question into two parts. The first type of scenario is something that you might have witnessed or that you might have heard of before, and it's when an airline takes off with a nearly empty plane, and the two or three or four passengers on board get the entire plane to themselves, and I'm sure this would be a really cool experience. The question is though why an airline would bother flying a flight if it has only filled a few seats. It definitely isn't profitable, and it makes even less sense if the passengers can easily be rebooked on a different flight. The thing is, airlines don't just consider that one single flight, and the thinking is a little bit broader and bigger picture. So let's say that your nearly empty flight is going from New York to Atlanta. The plane might be then scheduled to fly back to New York from Atlanta afterwards, and that next flight might be completely full. So if the airline cancels the first flight because it's empty, it would also have to cancel the next flight because the plane wouldn't be in Atlanta to operate it, and they would be canceling a sold-out flight. Let's say the plane was continuing on to a different destination when it got to Atlanta. That would cause further scheduling problems for the airline if they don't operate that first flight. And the same thing goes for the crew. If the crew are scheduled for a flight afterwards and they don't end up going to Atlanta, the airline's going to have to find a new crew for the next flight that they were scheduled to operate or find some other way for the crew to get to Atlanta. The second part of this answer is about why airlines will fly empty planes around in cases where it's not actually a scheduled passenger flight. And there's a lot of operational reasons why an airline might do this. Airlines might fly a plane around for pilot training purposes, for example, and these types of flights have been common during the COVID-19 pandemic. There are requirements on how often pilots need to fly to keep their certifications current, and so airlines have been flying empty planes to help keep pilots current. Airlines might also fly empty planes around for maintenance tests or to reposition planes between airports. If an airline has a plane break down at an outstation, which refers to an airport that isn't one of its bases, it might choose to send an empty plane to go pick up all the passengers if the original plane is going to be grounded for a few days. So as you can see, there's a bunch of operational reasons why airlines might fly empty planes around. And of course, airlines pick up planes and fly them to their bases when they first get them, and then they fly them away empty when aircraft are getting retired. Did you know that the first example of a film being shown on a plane was in 1921? That being said, the first airline to regularly show feature films was Transworld Airlines, and they started doing so in 1961. That year, they played their first in-flight movie, which was a 1961 drama directed by John Sturgis called By Love Possessed. The year before, John Sturgis had directed one of his most famous films, The Magnificent Seven. And as for Transworld Airlines, it was acquired by American Airlines in 2001. We're always looking for different ways to save money and get a good deal. When we're flying, we're presented with a bunch of opportunities to make some purchases. And some of these opportunities are better than others, so for our main segment today, we're going to look at shopping throughout the air travel experience. We're going to look at three main topics. 
First, we're going to talk about duty-free shopping and go over how it works and what you need to be careful of. I'm then going to talk about what happened to the famous Sky Mall magazine, and then I'll wrap up by looking at why things are so expensive at airports. Let's start with duty-free. I've been asked some questions about duty-free shopping in the past, and I think there's some misconceptions around the concept. There's a good number of stories out there about people who don't quite understand how duty-free shopping works and end up in trouble or paying way more than they thought they would. Now, if you've ever flown through a major international airport, you'll know that they tend to have big, eye-catching duty-free shops lined with brightly lit shelves of shiny, shiny goods. A lot of international flights will also have duty-free sales on board with catalogs in your seat pocket filled with things like watches, fragrances, and different types of gifts. Duty-free shopping can be found all throughout international air travel, and the goods being sold are usually things like alcohol, cosmetics, fragrances, tobacco, and other luxury goods. Now let me go through the fundamentals of duty-free really quickly. In much of the world, there's a tax that gets paid on things when they are bought or sold, and you probably know of these taxes from your everyday lives as a sales tax or as a value-added tax. A duty is just another type of tax that is levied on goods being imported or exported. Now in most tax systems, taxes aren't levied on items being exported to ensure that they aren't disadvantaged in price on the global market. Duty-free shopping basically allows you to use this concept and buy items that are leaving the country without having to pay a tax on them. The government of the country that you're buying the item in has decided that because those goods are leaving the country, they can be sold without sales taxes or whatever other taxes might normally be required. And they've decided that this is an acceptable thing to do because of the idea that there generally aren't duties levied on items being exported from a country. Now, duty-free shops exist mostly in the departure areas of international airports. Some airlines also have duty-free sales on board their international flights, but in some countries, when you arrive there, you might also see what is called arrivals duty-free, and this is when there are duty-free stores that arriving passengers can shop at. This concept doesn't really make sense, given the principles about exported goods and sales taxes that I was talking about earlier. If the whole idea of duty-free is that governments exempt taxes on goods that are leaving a country, then they shouldn't also be letting people buy duty-free items on arrival, since those goods are immediately entering the country right after the person buys them. But the reason that some countries allow arrivals duty-free is to encourage people to buy things within their borders. Basically, a government says, well, passengers are going to buy duty-free items from their airport of departure before they get here, Let's just try to encourage them to spend money in our own country when they arrive by giving them a break on the taxes here. Now, duty-free shops and catalogs make themselves very appealing, and they can be a good place to get some shopping done. But there's two main traps that people fall into, and I'll go through each of them briefly. I find that the number one most misunderstood thing about duty-free shopping is this. When you buy something that is duty-free, it is only duty-free for the country where that store is located. If you buy a duty-free item in one country and then take it to another country, you have to remember that the two countries have completely different tax systems. 
just because something is duty-free in the country where you're shopping doesn't mean that it's duty-free in the country you're bringing it back to. Now, most countries have limits on what you can bring into their country without having to pay duties and taxes, and this limit is known as an exemption. If you're a resident of the United States, for example, you can generally bring back $800 worth of goods back to the US when you've traveled abroad for more than 48 hours, although there's a bunch of exceptions to this case. Canada has a similar $800 exemption for its residents that leave for more than 48 hours, and other countries have their own rules as well. Countries will also usually have limits on how much alcohol and tobacco you can bring back into the country without having to pay duties and taxes. Remember though that these exemptions aren't hard limits on what you're allowed to bring back to your country of residence, but rather they're just how much you can bring without having to pay taxes on them. If you exceed your exemptions, it's fine, but you're liable for duties and taxes. When you buy duty-free products outside of your home country, they'll count towards your exemption when you return home, because remember, it's not the country that you're entering that considers those products to be duty-free, it's the country that you bought them in. If you're over your exemption, you're still going to have to pay import duties and taxes on those goods, even if you didn't have to pay taxes on them when you bought it. The second thing that people often get caught up in when making duty-free purchases is not realizing that just because something is duty-free doesn't mean it's a good deal. Duty-free stores are very good at attracting customers, with their bright lights and their fancy displays and whatnot, but just because you don't have to pay taxes on something doesn't mean you're actually paying less. The base price of the product that you're buying at the duty-free store might be higher than it is elsewhere. Now, you can often get a good deal at a duty-free store, yes, don't get me wrong, but with some things, you might actually not be saving any money. This is often the case with electronics, for example. If you're shopping at a duty-free store for the primary purpose of saving money, make sure you do your research, compare prices, and check the exchange rates. You don't want to let yourself get caught up in these two common pitfalls of duty-free shopping. That being said, if you're confident that you're getting a good deal both when you buy it and even after you consider your exemptions and any duties and taxes you might have to pay when you return home, then duty-free shopping can be a great way to do some shopping during your flying experience. There's one more thing that you might want to keep in mind. If you're purchasing some sort of liquid at a duty-free store before you get on a plane, usually alcohol, and you have a connecting flight afterwards, you might run into some issues at your connecting airport if you have to go through security since you'll be carrying a liquid. What the duty-free store should be able to do for you though is put your liquid purchases in a secure bag. And these are basically sealed plastic bags that have security features that make it obvious if it's been tampered with. And they usually uh, are clear and have a big red border around the edge. And these are generally accepted at airports around the world. But sometimes there are restrictions like how recently the purchase must have been made when you're making your connection. So if you want to be on the safe side, make sure you go and check the rules for the airport or the country that you're connecting through. The next thing in our discussion about shopping while flying comes from a kind of random question that I thought about recently. What happened to SkyMall? I can't quite exactly remember how this question came to my mind, but I realized that I hadn't seen it in years, and so I went and did a bit of digging. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one with this question, so I wanted to share this story. 
If you flew during the 1990s and the 2000s in the United States, you're bound to remember the iconic SkyMall magazine. If you're a bit younger or aren't from the US or aren't so familiar with SkyMall, let me fill you in. SkyMall could be found in pretty much every single airline seat back pocket in the US. It was super popular among passengers and was sometimes even more popular than the airline's own in-flight magazine. It was essentially a catalog, but it actually worked more like an advertisement platform for different retailers who you could buy stuff from and then have it shipped to your house. SkyMall would make money by charging fees to the companies to be listed, and then they would take a cut out of each sale as well. There were a lot of things sold in the SkyMall magazine, but they were particularly well known for some of the whimsical and weird products that were listed, like an $1,800 unicycle, a glow-in-the-dark toilet seat, and a vacuum cleaner to catch flies. I don't know about you, but I've never really thought about having a glow-in-the-dark toilet seat or catching flies using a vacuum cleaner. But anyway, their business model made a lot of sense. In the 1990s and 2000s, and even into the earlier part of the 2010s, there was less technology and in-flight entertainment, ordering from physical catalogs was more common, and electronics were banned during takeoff and landing. People sitting on planes with not much to do was the perfect audience for a shopping catalog. So back to the original question. You don't see SkyMall on planes anymore today, so what happened? Well, based on how their business worked and how technology has evolved over the last decade, you can probably see where this is going. For the longest time, SkyMall didn't really have any competitors. They would sign exclusive agreements with airlines, and there weren't many things for people to do when flying. But then, along came things like Amazon, laptops, tablets, in-flight Wi-Fi, more seatback televisions, and then we started allowing people to use their electronics throughout the entire flight. All of these things started to pose a threat to SkyMall's business, and they ended up filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in January 2015. That's not the end of the story, though. SkyMall declared bankruptcy in January 2015, but they were purchased in April 2015 and relaunched the following month as an online retailer. They had a plan to get back into planes, but that never really ended up happening. Today, SkyMall is still an online retailer, and you can go on their website and browse their selection of items, some of which are still a bit quirky. So even though the days of their iconic in-flight catalog magazine are over, SkyMall is still very much alive today. Airports have a notorious reputation for having really expensive food and other necessities. At airports, you'll see crazy prices like water bottles and snacks for twice as much as you'd see outside the airport, for example. Why does this happen, though? The obvious answer is that there isn't much competition and the retailers have what's called a captive audience, meaning that people have no choice and they have to eat or buy stuff in the airport. And this thinking has a lot of truth in it, right? When you're buying a pack of gum at the airport, you don't have very many choices on where to get it from. If you're trying to get some food, it's not like you can drive to another part of town if you think the prices at all the food outlets are too high. So based on this alone, simple supply and demand thinking from basic economics provides an easy explanation on why things can be so unbelievably expensive at airports. If it were that straightforward though, I could end this segment here, but it's a bit more complicated than that. There are some legitimate reasons why prices at airports might be higher. 
generally speaking, it costs a lot more to start and run a store or a restaurant in an airport than it would be on the street. Rent is often more expensive and is often tied to revenues with minimum guarantees on how much a business needs to pay to the airport. Or, airports might sometimes simply take a portion out of each sale. Retailers also often have to cover the costs of employee security screenings and airport parking, which also has a reputation for being super expensive. All of the goods that are going into airports, especially for businesses located in the secure area, also have to be screened as well. Now, the reality is probably that it's some combination of all of these factors. Yes, stores and restaurants might charge more at an airport because they can, but running a food or retail outlet at an airport is legitimately challenging and costly. Some airports have what is called street pricing, and that's where they mandate that things be sold for the same price as they would be on the street. Portland International Airport is very well known for their street pricing, but other airports like Seattle-Tacoma also do it as well. Street pricing isn't a perfect solution though, and it's not always exactly as great as it sounds. Firstly, sometimes it can be hard to define exactly what street pricing is. If you buy a bag of candy at a convenience store, on a corner, or at a gas station, it might be more expensive than if you bought it at a place like Walmart. So it can be a bit hard to pinpoint exactly what the street price of something would be. The second thing is that like I established earlier, Running a food or retail outlet in an airport legitimately can have higher costs than running one on the street, and sometimes airports that have street pricing will allow for a bit of variance in their pricing. So they might say, hey, we're mandating street pricing, but we also understand that your costs at the airport are actually higher, so we're going to let your prices be up to, let's say, 10% higher than they would be on the street. Some airports have also put in additional resources into helping their tenants to help support street pricing. In Portland's case, for example, what they do is provide assistance to retailers and restaurants for things like getting employee security clearances. I hope that gives you a bit of an idea on why airports have developed this reputation for being really expensive places. The good news is that street pricing is possible, and even though some airports can do it more easily than others, I'm glad to see that more and more airports are adopting street pricing. Of course, there are also some things that you can do to save yourself some money. Instead of buying food or travel necessities at the airport, you can always bring your own. To avoid having to purchase an expensive water bottle, you can always bring an empty water bottle and fill it up once you go through security. That brings us to the end of this episode of Flying Smarter. If you're enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a minute to write a quick review for the show if you're listening on a platform that allows you to do so, like Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.